my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the third genius. Yes, of course, that's Harold Lloyd. The guy dangling from a clock tower? Yes, the guy that many people have seen his photo and perhaps have never seen his films. And there's a reason for that. Mm. Specifically because... Harold Lloyd was a man that liked to control his art, and by that, he wouldn't let them be released to television. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't let them be released to television, unlike people like Chaplin or Buster Keaton, whose uh, movies and shorts were in syndications endlessly to the point that a lot of them went to public domain, Harold Lloyd's films and shorts were just never shown. And in fact, I believe most people saw his films for the first time in the mid-2000s when they came out on a, a DVD box set released by New Line of all companies. When Harold Lloyd passed away in 1971, his family wasted no time to sell his films and shorts to a cable network who recut them into a TV show-like format and got rid of the intertitles, showed them at 24 frames per second, which they're not supposed to be shown at, and then the narrator over the short would say stuff like, uh-oh, Harold's in trouble now! I, I just want to say something to that point before we get into Harold Lloyd. It's so crazy to think that in the 50s and 60s there was this vogue for compilation films of like the greatest moments from the silent era. This guy called Robert Youngson used to direct a lot of them, and they'd be called like the golden age of comedy or mm -hmm. Laurel and Hardy's laughing twenties. And they would just be like totally out of context clips sped up at the wrong speed or with dumb sound effects and dumb narration. Uh oh, uh, Charlie's looking in a hose. What could happen? <laughs> and that was the only way that people could see footage from these movies back then. And the people releasing this implied the fact that they think that the things are bad and don't work anymore. So they have to come in and tinker them, yeah. which is the worst way to approach that kind of stuff. But Harold Lloyd, had you seen any of his movies before this? I believe I had seen The Kid Brother years ago. Mm -hmm. And I liked it, but I probably didn't have the same appreciation I have for that kind of comedy now. So when I rewatched it again, I found it hilarious. Going over Lloyd's films, the first thing that I really recognize is that they feel very modern in the mm -hmm. way that they're constructed. But before we get into those, let's jump to the beginning of his career. Uh, Harold Lloyd was born into a poor family that had no real ties to show business. His father, whose nickname was Foxy, <laughs> was known as a nice. kind of con man trying to get like deals or money very easily for a long time they actually survived on the fact that his father was hit by a car mm -hmm. and they sued the company and got a big settlement out of it mm -hmm. which gave him an opportunity to live and Harold Lloyd always wanted to be an actor unlike a lot of the people that went on to do slapstick he was not a vaudevillian mm -hmm. which is surprising considering the stuff that he kind of did so Lloyd made his first movie in 1915 as an extra he made maybe a hundred movies between 1915 and 1922 mm -hmm. 1922 being the year of his film Grandma's Boy, mm -hmm. which was the movie that where everything crystallized for him. Now, the two other geniuses, uh, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, were able to come into their own much more quickly than him. Like, Buster Keaton had his apprenticeship period a year making films with Fatty Arbuckle, and then his first movie that he directed, One Week, is a masterpiece. Charlie Chaplin was instantly popular, and then within two or three years, he had kind of reached his mature style. But with Harold Lloyd, it took a full seven years. And what's interesting about Harold Lloyd is that he actually worked with the comedy greats as he was coming up. One of the reasons that he did really get into the comedy scene is that he befriended famous comedy director and producer Hal Roach. And that when Roach started his own company, Roland Films, he actually reached out to Harold Lloyd and said, hey, come work for me and we can do stuff together. And Hal Roach later became most famous as being the person who put Laurel and Hardy together and who created the Our Gang Little Rascals shorts. Harold Lloyd made a number of films with Hal Roach. He made a number of films with Max Sennett, the guy who discovered Charlie Chaplin. But those two guys just weren't able to give him the material that would make him a star. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that the character that he was most well-known for was just a Charlie Chaplin ripoff. He made a number of films in the guise of Lonesome Luke. <laughs> there were a lot of Charlie Chaplin impersonators at the time because Chaplin was undoubtedly the most famous man in the world at the time. As Harold Lloyd would later explain, Lonesome Luke was quite different from Chaplin because Chaplin had baggy pants and Lonesome Luke had tight pants and his mustache uh, had a little split in the middle. 
And, you know, his derby hat was perhaps colored a little differently. <laughs> that sounds like the case that Lloyd would make at, like, copyright court of, like, why they can't come after I him. Mean, it is an in- inverse of Chaplin's costume, and yet it is still the same costume. And he still kind of acts the same way, and they would do a very Chaplin-esque gags, which, when Harold Lloyd would become famous, was not what he would do. It's more than just how Roach and Maxenet didn't have the material for him. It took Harold Lloyd a long time just to know what he was. Yeah, Hal Roach has talked about Lloyd as not really a comedian, but an actor that was playing a comedian. And unlike Buster Keaton and unlike Charlie Chaplin, he didn't have those years of honing mm-hmm. his craft in vaudeville. And, and he's not an acrobat like they are. And frankly, I don't think he's, if there is such a thing as a genius, he's a genius the way they are. No, I think that... His films, especially his best ones, are a genius of construction. Mm -hmm. When I say that his films feel very modern, it's the way that they're built and the way that they deliver gags. Like, there's something a little bit more, like, mythical about, like, a Keaton or a Chaplin gag Mm -hmm. than a a Lloyd gag, which is very well constructed and is hilarious, but it's different. And also there are preoccupations and there are are consistent worldviews in the Chaplin and Keaton oeuvres. Like, Chaplin... Uh, so much of his mature work is about poverty and about uh, sort of class issues. With Keaton, you know, so many of his films are about him being this little resilient man in this giant cosmic obstacle course that is the universe. Whereas I don't know what Harold Lloyd's outlook is, except just making good, well-made comedies. So for a character that wasn't that successful on a comedic level, Lonesome Luke was still fairly popular, and Lloyd made 80 shorts with that character (laughs) until he finally came upon uh, another look, which was the Glass character, also known as the Kid. And the Glass character was someone that had no defined characteristics in the sense that from one feature or one short, he could be like a poor guy trying to work his way up, or he can be like a foppish dandy Mm -hmm. who has everything and is kind of oblivious to the world. The only thing linking them all was his look and most specifically Harold Lloyd's glasses. Well, the glasses are so important to Harold Lloyd because if you took the glasses off of him, I don't think he would recognize him if he crossed you on the street. He was very happy that that if he took the glasses off, which he did not wear in real life, that people would not recognize him. He basically looked like a movie star if you took them off. He's blandly handsome. Exactly. Uh, he's, he doesn't have a particularly expressive face. Mm. Before this, I, I, I had seen, I think, all of the kind of key Harold Lloyd silent films, but I hadn't really ventured far into the deep cuts mm-hmm. um, because I always kind of, you know, uh, as as Ned Flanders said, uh, I like his films except for that nervous fellow. Really? In him. Well, you know, I've. I always regarded Harold Lloyd as a bit of a blank, like a bit of a Zeppo Marx mm. who happened... Oof. who happened, That's rough, man. Okay, he's better than Zeppo Marx, <laughs> but I always regard him as being like kind of the least interesting thing in these, in these wonderful movies. Mm-hmm. This week, watching a number of his films back to back, I gained a certain greater fondness mm-hmm. for him because there is kind of a plucky, can-do spirit to Yeah, him. there's an idea of optimism or as a bunch of texts have written about Harold Lloyd, a kind of middle-class conservatism, specifically about white guys, the idea that in America, in this capitalist system, if you work hard enough, you can reach the top. Right, and that was that was one reason why he was so popular in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. He was the can-do spirit of America on the upswing, you know, if, if one were to be a, a social theorist about his appeal. So you mentioned Grandma's Boy was his first film, mm-hmm. and the big difference between Grandma Boy and the stuff that Lloyd had made previously is that he was very conscious about the idea that he wanted to make this a character film. Mm-hmm. When Lloyd talked about his feature film, Films, he spoke of them in usually two different categories. One of them being character films, where you follow the journey of a character and he goes through ups and downs. And the other ones are just gag films, which are just gag, 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 as many as you can get in there. Mm-hmm. And so Grandma's Boy was a huge success. And after that, he kind of, you know, fumbled a little bit. He made a film called Dr. Jack, where it was a gag film where he played like a country doctor who, you know, um, maybe medicine isn't the best thing that you should take. Maybe a little bit of love or not being lonely. A little bit of Christian science, which Harold Lloyd actually grew up in a family who that's what their religion was. But the movie that I guess solidified his stardom and in the mid to late 20s, he was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Yeah, he's famously the guy that made more than Chaplin and Keaton in that 10-year span, 
only because he made more movies. Like Chaplin's movies would have been bigger events, mm-hmm. but just dollar for dollar, Harold Lloyd made more. Uh, but the movie that solidified his stardom is 1923's Safety Last, aka the film where he dangles from the clock tower. Now, this is a film with a lot of laughs. It moves really quick. The story hinges on the idea that Harold Lloyd has to lie to his girlfriend. (laughs) Well, he is a boy from a small town who moves to the big city hoping to make good, and he gets a shitty job at a department store and in his letters home because his girlfriend and his family would be absolutely shamed if he did not make a success for himself. In his letters home, he writes that he, uh, you know, he's like the manager of this department store now, and he's a real bigwig, when in actuality, he's just a cashier. Mm -hmm. So his girlfriend comes to visit him and you know a lot of shenanigans i was some pretty funny stuff you know him trying to hide his uh i mean there's a lot of funny stuff yeah. and you can really break down harold's comedy in some very specific kind of sections like there's the misunderstanding which is he'll reach out and like grab something or pull something up and it won't be the right thing for example at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film he's about to catch a train and he's waving goodbye to his family and he reaches out and grabs a cart that's going in the opposite direction yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you also have a comedy of embarrassment which was not always the thing that Chaplin or Keaton would fall into, mm-hmm. which is that Lloyd is the butt of a joke that he mm-hmm. doesn't understand mm-hmm. is going on around him, which but, I find hilarious. But this movie, it's all about the last 20 minutes, mm-hmm. where in order to get some money and to be seen as a success in the eyes of his girlfriend, he devises a big publicity stunt for the department store where a human fly of his acquaintance... <laughs> uh, hey, look at me! I'm a human fly, guys! Citizen's <laughs> joke. This was a very popular thing in the 1920s, guys who would climb the sides of buildings. <laughs> That's crazy. That, that was a fad at the time, apparently. <laughs> Let's bring it back, Will, me and you. Let's we'll do it. The human Let's flies. do it. Uh, but Harold Lloyd gets his human fly friend to come and uh, climb the side of the building uh, as, a, as a big uh, attention-grabbing spectacle. Because he makes a deal with his boss that if he gets a bunch of people to just come to the department store, the boss will give him $1,000. That's right. Uh, but unfortunately, the human fly had trouble with a local police officer, and so he gets chased all over the block, leaving Harold himself to climb the side of the Well, building. it has an amazing gimmick, which is the human fly guy tells Harold, listen, you get to the second floor and we'll switch out and I'll continue to climb, no problem. And what happens is that there's two comedy bits running side by side. Mm-hmm. One of them is Harold Lloyd going up and his friends being chased by the cop in the building, mm-hmm. trying to lose the cop so they can switch but always telling Harold, just go up one more yeah. floor and then I'll meet you at the next one. Okay, so this scene is an absolute comic masterclass. Five stars. <laughs> yeah, five stars just for this alone. And the rest of the movie's good too. But, yeah. but this scene, like when Harold Lloyd starts climbing the building, they establish how dangerous and how unqualified he is by having him stumble and by having him fall and like pull an awning down with him. Now, we forgot a very important piece of Harold Lloyd's biography. And that's when he was doing promotion shots when he was making his shorts, someone handed him, accidentally, I guess, a real bomb, which he then lit and it exploded in his face. He thought it was a prop bomb. <laughs> which severed and uh, his thumb and index finger of his right hand. And he was right-handed. So what they did to cover up that fact is that they got a glove to go over his kind of mangled hand when he would shoot shorts that had fingers built into that. Yeah, a flesh-colored glove. If you're looking for it, you can notice it. But if you didn't know, it would never even cross your mind. Yeah, so poor guy, he's got half a hand and he's trying to climb the side of a building. But just the the way the scene is constructed, first of all, like establishing the stakes of the scene Mm -hmm. as he starts climbing the building. But then the build of the scene where on every level of the building, some new obstacle and some greater obstacle start, whether it's uh, uh, some kid pours peanuts on him and birds start like landing on his head. Or he or... gets hit by a construction worker's piece of plywood, which pushes him further away from the building and he's just dangling on it. Uh, until finally he gets to the clock tower and then, you know, the scene that we all know and love happens. So this is a film that uh, audiences at the time were supposed to have fainted while watching. And when you watch how the way it's constructed Constructed in the way the angles that they shoot, you would not know there's any special effects if you didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Because the way that they shot it was not with green screens or superimpositions by building the facade of what he's climbing on the top of a hill in Los Angeles so you get the depth of yeah. being on top of something. With forced perspective exactly. to, to the buildings behind. And like the angles that they shoot it at are so well chosen because you can see you know, it's this low angle shot where you can see all the activity of the traffic happening Mm -hmm. on the road beneath. So you know that like, 
this is a living city that he's climbing above. And if he falls, he's going to get hit by those cars. <laughs> or then there's another shot. Harold Lloyd didn't do all the climbing himself. So yeah. if, if it's a really far away shot, it's a stuntman. But there are the far away shots where you can see the building at a distance. And you can see this like ant-like figure climbing the building to emphasize the scale of the building. And while it's a comedy, and you know Harold Lloyd is not going to die... Mm-hmm. The way that it's built is so suspenseful, and that's where the comedy comes from. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like a gag. They're like, haha, I can't believe that appeared on screen. It's holy shit, that's happening. So my reaction is gonna be to laugh. Right. I guess there are some similarities in this scene to the kind of stuff Buster Keaton did, mm-hmm. like in Steamboat Bill Jr., when the whole city is falling apart around him. Um, but I mean, if there's a difference between the two of them, it's that Buster Keaton is this island of calm. Whereas Harold Lloyd is screaming in terror. Yeah, he's terrified. And I think um, Walter Kerr was the first one to make this observation in his great book, The Silent Clowns. He mentioned that what people loved about Chaplin and Keaton was that they were otherworldly figures. Mm-hmm. They were, yeah, they were beings from another planet. But Harold Lloyd was one of us. And he didn't have any... Uh, he, he wasn't even acrobatic in a way that separated him from us. Well, Harold Lloyd did do a lot of stunts. Like, he was uh, famous for getting hurt or, like, mm-hmm. doing a kind of bit that was dangerous. He didn't have that level of Keaton. The joke is that Keaton pulls this crazy gag off. Yeah. It was more like, oh, my God, is he just going to get through this? Exactly, yeah. So, Safety Last, Stone Cold Classic. Harold Lloyd made quite a bunch of features over the 20s, which was his big peak of creativity before the talkies came in. Me and you also got a chance to watch The Freshman, mm-hmm. which is probably uh, considered one of the most uh, coherent, dramatically Harold Lloyd pictures in the mm-hmm. sense that you're following one character and his ups and downs until he reaches a level of success at the end. Harold plays a kind of nerdy guy who dreams of going to college. And I, side note, I feel like the idea of the college boy had was a different thing back then. I think it was more exotic back yeah, then. Yeah, college was a very, very expensive thing that only mm-hmm. the upper class did. Mm-hmm. So to see Harold Lloyd go to college is almost like the middle and lower class seeing one of them right. get an opportunity to kind of pal around with these people. But of course, he is made fun of the second that he steps onto campus. He has the goal of becoming the most popular guy on campus and and dethroning uh, Chet. What's his name? <laughs> yeah, the, just Chet. <laughs> the, the sinister Chet. But of course, he's nerdy and he can't quite fit in. And uh, everyone realizes that because he's so desperate to become popular, he will buy them stuff. Yeah. And they can treat him like shit, which includes making him a live tackle dummy for the football team. <laughs> that stuff is so funny. And you can see in that scene, <laughs> Harold actually is being slammed against the ground over and over and over again as people are tackling him. So, so this is when I started to really feel fondly towards mm. Harold Lloyd in a way that I never have before. Because, I mean, I know I had seen this movie years before, Mm -hmm. but I guess I think seeing, again, seeing all these movies together and when you start to become familiar with him as a screen presence, he's, he's... I don't know, maybe it's the fact that he's such an innocuous screen presence that the fa- that watching him get tackled over and over and over again makes it funnier. Well, he's often played as like this optimistic figure who just wants this gung-ho attitude. Mm-hmm. But the films often take a moment to show that he is the butt of the joke and him realizing it and his face just falling when mm-hmm. that realization hits him. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's like a moment of sadness that the audience has. And I mean, like... Keaton and Chaplin are sympathetic figures, but they're often static in the way that they're presented. Like, they are who they are. Well, Buster Keaton's like uh, a stone, stone face. face. Yeah. Although, even within his so- stone face, there are, there are so many nuances yes. that appear. But, but, but like, yeah. Lloyd, in like the way that he kind of traverses these romantic, because of course there's a silent feature, mm-hmm. that there's a uh, woman that he has to win by the end, mm-hmm. that he wants you to have this heart in the comedy, which will make it that much funnier because you want these people to succeed. And like the Three Stooges, who, you know, maybe they'll kill each other, maybe yeah. they won't. The centerpiece scene in The Freshman, I think, is the big party scene. Oh my god, it's so good. It, yeah, it's a masterpiece. I texted Will at the time when the scene came up that it really reminded me of Hong Kong cinema because what happens is that Lloyd gets a new suit, but it's not complete and it's kind of fallen apart. So his tailor says, I will come with you even though I'm a drunk and have dizzy spells <laughs> and try to repair it if anything breaks. Boy, I wonder if that thing about him d- having dizzy spells is gonna <laughs> play in yeah. Nine banana cream pies! <laughs> so what ends up happening is Lloyd goes to this party that he's throwing and that everybody wants to grab his attention and his clothes keeps ripping and so this tailor keeps trying to repair it while Lloyd is trying to hide it from people 
people so they don't realize what's going on. And this is like classic silent comedy escalation where a conceit is shown and then you approach that conceit from every possible angle to, mm-hmm. and that you have a problem and then you have to find a funnier solution. And it keeps it keeps building where like the solution will have its own <laughs> yeah. repercussions that end up making the situation worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and it does something that I love that Lloyd likes to play with, which is even the camera is showing you something, but then when you cut to the different angle, it reveals that's the gag. Yeah. Like Lloyd sitting at a table with a young woman that they're having a chat, and then it cuts to him. He's actually on his stomach. Yeah. Because the guy is repairing his pants behind a drape, and uh-oh, what happens when the guy gets drunk and falls on Lloyd's legs? <laughs> he starts to sink under the table. A situation that makes no sense if it would happen in real life, but... The way the camera angles utilize it, that's where the comedy comes from. And then it ends with the famous football scene. <laughs> where Lloyd cheats his way to victory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is fine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I did like the end of that because, you know, the football game happened. And instead of going to credit, there's a sequence where the girl gives him a little note that says, like, I love you or something mm. like that. And then he, like, leans against a shower, which then rains on him mm. as a smile comes upon his face. Yeah, that's fun. Just feel good. Yeah. But I think my favorite Harold Lloyd film, which I don't think is yours, no. is Speedy from yeah. 1928, which is definitely his biggest film, mm-hmm. just in terms of scope. So these films that Lloyd would make uh, were dubbed by the press thrill pictures or high and dizzies. Mm. And Lloyd was a little bit peeved that people kind of put him in that box, that he considered himself more of a comedian. Because a thrill picture implies a, a, a gimmick. You know, yeah. It's like you don't need comedic skill to thrill people. And it's also even lower than comedy on the kind of like base genre entertainment Mm -hmm. but speedy is probably his biggest attempt to like thrill as much as he can and i mean there's stuff in the kid brother there's stuff in girl crazy including like a famous chase scene Mm -hmm. where he's jumping from vehicle to vehicle Mm -hmm. but it's really speedy that's like whoa this is crazy so part of the reason i like this movie so much is because it's like 1928 New York, the movie. Crystallized on screen. A lot of the movie was shot in LA, um, most of the interiors, but all the exteriors are just fucking Times Square, Washington Square Park, Yankee Stadium, just so much stuff. And in this film, Harold Lloyd plays a guy who goes from job to job because his mind is on baseball and that his girlfriend's father runs the only horse cart left in New York. And you know, because Lloyd is just a conservative, doesn't want things to change. He's going to protect that horse cart. Or, you know, perhaps uh, he he values history. He does. Yeah. That's true. And what ends up happening is there's a bunch of misadventures for an hour until finally the plot kicks in. And the sinister developers who are trying to pressure the old man into giving up his horse-drawn um, streetcar when he won't sell, they start to sick their mobsters on him, and so Harold Lloyd has to save the day. Because there's an insane rule that if the uh, horse cart doesn't go on the tracks every 24 hours, like, they give away the land and the tracks, I guess? I, I buy it. You know, sure, whatever. Not? But this is a film whose set piece is just watching Harold Lloyd have fun at the Coney Island Amusement Park, oh. which is the fair of my dreams and nightmares. I was in heaven during the Coney, Coney Island scene, because... <laughs> I believe this was actually shot at Coney Island. Yes. What the hell are these rides? <laughs> they are insane. Each <laughs> one crazier than the last, including just riding horses on like a raised track of a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Or there's there's one ride. You know the ride um, at most amusement parks where, you know, it spins uh, around really quickly and you get like stuck to the wall because of the, the speed is so fast? Well, there's something like that, except... Everyone sits on this revolving wheel in the middle of of the thing, and then it spins around, and then it gets so fast that it shoots everyone to the side. And the gag is that you need to stay on it for at least three minutes. It looks incredibly dangerous. (laughs) But, you know, Harold makes it to the end until uh, uh, that crab he has in his pocket bites him on the ass. (laughs) So, yeah, the the Coney Island scene, it has lots of, you know, great shit of he's got a a lobster in his pocket, and, you know, he's trying not to get his suit uh, messed up. And guess what? He gets a suit messed up. So it's half, you know, fun Harold Lloyd shenanigans and half uh, Holy 28 Coney Island I can't travelogue. believe that log flume ride that doesn't have a track so when it hits the water <laughs> it just shoots across it and a guy has to take a paddle out and go back to shore. Incredible. I think this movie has a couple of Harold Lloyd's best set pieces 
too, particularly the stretch in the middle where he's a taxi driver. Mm. Every single passenger ends up not working out for him. Yeah. Uh, very funny stuff. Leading up to him picking up Babe Ruth, mm-hmm. the real Babe Ruth, <laughs> yep. as himself. As thir- the opening credit show? Third build in the cast <laughs> list. That's how much of a 1928 New York movie this is. And while Harold Lloyd almost kills Babe Ruth in a death-defying chase scene, like, mm. when you watch these, you understand that they're sped up, but it's still the close calls that you're seeing are insane. So it's it's not only is it so fast, but it's through the streets of 28 New York, so it's all these old cars. I'm like, wait, were there, like, traffic rules at this point? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it climaxes with this incredible chase, you know, Harold Lloyd dri- driving the horse-drawn streetcar from the top of Manhattan to the bottom of Manhattan, going through all the landmarks. And this horse-drawn carriage coming within, like, an inch of hitting stuff right up until it smashes into a subway pole. So, yeah, so I don't know. I was in heaven. And uh, that uh, subway pole hit was actually an accident when you see it in the movie, which is why that it's kind of off of screen. And you actually see the stuntman fly off the handlebars out of frame, where very, I assumed he died. Very topical this <laughs> yeah. week, isn't it? This was the last... Uh, thrill picture silent film that Harold Lloyd made because what ended up happening is that the talkies came in uh, and Lloyd didn't fight the talkies. He was in the middle of making a feature film and when he kind of, according to his biographer, walked by a theater and heard people screeching with laughter and saw that voices were coming out of the screen, he actually reshot his feature so they would incorporate that. Mm. And... Um, Talkies were weird for Lloyd because unlike a lot of the other silent comedians who couldn't make that transition, like some of his co-stars, for example, had lisps so they couldn't move on in cinema. He had a voice that matched his persona. Mm, Kind of high-pitched, cheery. For some reason, though, the format just wasn't for him. Uh, He was a artist that was famous for testing his films, making sure that they would play as well as they could for audiences. And what happened when talkies came in is that because this was a whole new medium, it's almost as if he let things play longer than they should. Me and you watched a film that he made called Movie Crazy. Which I think is considered his best talkie. Mm -hmm. Woof. I didn't like it very much. I thought there's just something off about it. I mm-hmm. mean, there's something off about a lot of early talkies because, you know, it doesn't, they hadn't figured out to put a musical score on it yet. So a lot of scenes play in kind of awkward silence or the sound effects are just a little too loud. And the director of Movie Crazy, for some reason, likes to play everything in very complex tracking shots, like go up and down. I thought down. that was kind of interesting. It's interesting, know? but it's not funny. Yeah. And that's a big problem with that until uh, Movie Crazy gets to a scene where Harold Lloyd is at a party and he accidentally got the suit of a magician which is filled with tricks and that's hilarious. That's an absolute classic scene. So there's 10 really great minutes in Movie Crazy. And you wish there was just more of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems with Harold Lloyd in the talkie era might have been that in the silent era, him and all the other major comedians didn't have a script. They had a basic scenario and then he worked with his gag men to, you know, improvise on the set and to try stuff out. And I don't think that was as feasible in the talkie era. When yeah, they would money. often build the big final set piece of the film first mm-hmm. and then kind of pad it out with other gags and plot around that to lead to the big comedic moment. And what Lloyd discovered is that, no, they had to make scripts and stuff like that, which was kind of against the way that he was working. Because Harold Lloyd, once he got popular, actually started his own studio. Mm -hmm. So he had his own back lot where they shot all of his films and he could take his time. If he wanted to go back and reshoot a gag because it didn't work, he could just go and do it. Mm -hmm. When Grandma's Boy came out, And the first test screening, they actually found that they needed to add like 30 more gags. And because he owned his own studio, they had the opportunity to go and shoot that stuff. Mm -hmm. And now it was a little bit more complicated with sound. But also, you can't discount the fact that comedians go out of fashion. Mm. You know, you look at the history of comedians, most of them in the movies have 10 great years or less. And then they kind of fade out. I don't know, like the Marx Brothers, Buster Keaton, a a lot of them are like Jerry Lewis And, you know, if one were some sort of uh, social theorist, one might say that the Depression era was not as hospitable to his very 1920s can-do American uh, success story spirit. And there's like a lot of elements that go into why he just kind of stopped making movies as well. He was often talked about by his friends and family as someone that always had to win at Mm -hmm. what he did. And that when his film slowly and surely just kind of started to be box office failures, 
he realized, I don't need to do this anymore. I am incredibly rich. I can do stuff that I want to do. And then there's the other famous story that we kind of touched on. The fact that he refused to put his films back in circulation. And that seems to be partly because you know, out of that insecurity that mm. he had, that he wanted, if they were in circulation, he wanted audiences to love them. Yeah, he said that he didn't want his silent pictures to play with piano accompaniment, which was, you know, <laughs> the cheaper solution, and that it had to be organ accompaniment, <laughs> which that's quite a bit of a tall order. So by the mid-30s, he was basically done making movies, but then he had a comeback attempt in the late 40s, uh, filmed in 1945, released in 1947, with no less than Preston Sturges at oh, the helm. The man behind Sullivan's Travels, Palm Beach Story, like one of the comedy greats who supposedly went out and contacted Harold Lloyd himself because he wanted to bring Lloyd back into public consciousness. He had memories of seeing the freshman as a child, and it impacted him so strongly that he wanted to make a long-ass gap sequel to The Freshman. And that movie was called The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. And what was the result of these two comedy titans finally colliding? An oil and water mixture. <laughs> so Preston Sturgis, who's known as a um, screwball kind of genius, in mm. a sense, where his films are very, like, twisty, almost going against genre conventions sometimes, talky Very dialogue-driven, yeah. And Harold Lloyd, this visual gag-based comedian. So what does Sturgis make him do? Well, talk a lot. Until the last third of the movie, when... Okay, so well, I'll get to that in a sec. Let's set up what the movie is, because so, that's actually interesting. It opens with the final football scene from The Freshman, mm -hmm. you know, reprised. So you see the whole thing, and then it cuts to Harold Lloyd, now in his 50s, playing his you know, younger self, like a, like a second minutes yeah. after. And, and you wouldn't even know. He looks great. Yeah, yeah, he does. He looks very convincing. So, you know, right after uh, winning the football game in the freshman, he gets a job uh, working at, what is it? An advertising firm, I believe. Yeah. So where he spends the next 20 years being, you know, being slowly crushed, slowly disillusioned. So that optimistic can-do Lloyd is then turned into a broken down, life is meaningless, I'm stuck in a rut, Lloyd. So finally, not unlike Liam Neeson in The Commuter, he is unceremoniously fired mm -hmm. uh, with, with just the shirt on his back and $2,000 in savings. <laughs> and he goes out to have his very first drink. Which then causes him to go insane, as most people do when they try alcohol for the first time, I he guess. He has a real hangover-style night, and he wakes up and realizes that he has bought a circus. <laughs> so what does this lead to? A lot of talking and a lot of lion-based shenanigans. So it climaxes with uh, Harold Lloyd playing the hits because he goes up to the top of a skyscraper with a lion, you know, because he's trying to sell off his circus to someone else now. And it ends up with Harold and his partner and their lion on the ledge of the building, yelling a lot and screaming. And eventually, uh, Harold Lloyd is dangling by a chain attached to the tiger, you know, floating over the city. And while this wouldn't be the first time that he replays the hits, he also did another, like, on a tall building singing in the sound era. This is probably the lamest attempt at it, where <laughs> they shot it all in studio, so it's all, like, superimposed street scenes, mm -hmm. and Harold Lloyd is trying to sell the shit out of being on the Whoa! side of the <laughs> and it goes on and on and on, never really offering any new gags, except for Harold Lloyd's friend, some uh, Preston Sturge stock player, mm -hmm. some old man, knocked Harold Lloyd while trying to help him. That made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. There, there are one or two laughs in there, but there's never any doubt how it's going to go. And it does climax with a scene where Harold Lloyd gets everything that he wants and then realizes that he's not really happy, yeah. which, you know, that was nice. Much unlike the real Harold Lloyd, perhaps. <laughs> but yeah, this, this movie, uh, very much um, uh, Harold Lloyd's limelight, his, yeah. his Max Rose. As a deconstruction of the idea of Lloyd, the premise is there, but... It doesn't commit to it. No, it doesn't. And, and it seems to be that Lloyd and Sturges were at odds over this, right? Yeah, so there's an article that was written by David Callett called The Sins of Harold Lloyd, which I checked out excitedly and was disappointed. It wasn't about his sketchy personal life. <laughs> but um, Harold Lloyd, when he would talk about the film in interviews, he thought that it was really 
really about like, you know, even though you're crushed and the system is unfair, you can still succeed in what you want to do. When Preston Sturges has approached it more satire, like this will not even work, even if you do everything that you can in the system, mm -hmm. even when you get everything will still crush you at the end because that's the nature of the system. Perhaps post-war America wasn't ready for that message. Yeah. I mean, or, this... or perhaps they just didn't want to watch a kind of <laughs> shitty movie. Yeah. And perhaps they wanted Lloyd to actually do the things that he was good at, like gags and shit like or that. Or perhaps they didn't even remember who Lloyd was. Yeah, because, because he hadn't been in circulation forever. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd said that he would approach Sturges on the days that they were shooting and be like, oh, I got this great gag. And Sturges was like, no, we can't do that. That'll cut my dialogue down. Yeah. And it's like, that's not why we come to see Harold Lloyd films. This was a film that we also forgot to mention was produced by um, Howard Hughes. It was the first film of his film company. And Hughes being the insane control freak that he was, the reason that the film didn't come out for two years was that it was fiddled on by Hughes, uh, re-released as Mad Wednesday with, I believe, 20 minutes cut out and a talking horse added back into the film. Oh, man. Wish we watched that version. <laughs> I know. I made a mistake. <laughs> so after that, Lloyd retired. He um, followed his passions in his gigantic estate, Green Acres. He uh, painted. Uh, he did. He, in fact, he... As I'm sure if you've been to a used bookstore lately, you know that he became a uh, photographer of nude women. Which in the official biography of Harold Lloyd points out that he slept with a lot of them, that he had a very uh, tumultuous home life. Ah. But after that, Harold uh, would try again to uh, befriend the youth and make himself relevant again by re-editing a bunch of his best bits into one feature-length film, adding sound effects and stuff like that. Harold Lloyd's to, World of Comedy, I believe. To try to modern it up. And it actually went to the Cannes Film Festival and won an award or played to some acclaim. Yeah. Um, they probably just made up an award to give him. Yeah. And uh, he spent the rest of his life hanging out with the director of Ski School. <laughs> what's what's his name? I don't remember. But the Does it really matter? The director of Ski School is in the documentary Harold Lloyd the Third Genius. And he uh, is also on the commentary tracks that were released by the Criterion Collection. <laughs> he would go on to comedy directing greats in shows like Fuller House. Oh, nice. <laughs> Do you think on the set of Fuller House anyone asked him about being friends with Harold Lloyd? <laughs> Absolutely not. I can guarantee you that never happens. So Harold Lloyd died a uh, wealthy man in the in the early 70s, and uh, his legacy lives on today. That's a hack thing to say. <laughs> but summing it up, it's irresistible to compare him to Chaplin and Keaton because, you know, of, co of course, you're gonna, they're, they're yeah. the other two guys. Uh, if he's not as good as Chaplin and Keaton, it's because they're two of the very best filmmakers ever made, and Harold Lloyd was just a talented guy who worked very hard and uh, made some good comedies. Yeah, that made people laugh. Yeah. And that will still burn themselves in people's memory, because that safety last bit... I, I challenge anybody to watch that and go, that's old comedy. I have to, mm -hmm. you know, readjust the way I approach things. Nope, still works as good as it ever did. And in fact, I in his speech when he accepted an honorary Oscar, Kevin Brownlow, the great archivist and film historian, mentioned something along the lines of whenever he wanted to get people into silent film, he would just show them a Harold Lloyd movie. Mm -hmm. And I think there might be something to that. Yeah. I mean, the movies are just very accessible. Mm -hmm. They're very fun. Yeah. Like if you want to get into silent comedy and I've always been kind of wary that like, ah, the intertitles are going to be slow or something like that. Watch a Harold Lloyd film first and then you can move on to Chaplin and Keaton mm -hmm. because like we said, he's definitely the one that's the entry point. Mm -hmm. Okay, so letters this uh, week. You can send us letters, as per usual, at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from loyal listener Angie, who won the episode where she could pick our subject and made us do Mike Lee. Good filmmaker. This is a letter that I found in my spam filter, and you'll learn why when I read it. Hey, guys. I've been thinking about Will's love for old pornography and realized I have many questions. Boy. <laughs> Here it comes. Porn fiend Will. How do you feel about current porn? And do you have any favorite filmmakers? Will? There's a bunch of questions uh, that we'll go through um, this. Let's see. Uh, bang Bros? <laughs> no. Um, Whatever's in the featured at Pornhub.com. Yeah, I mean, basically. I mean, no. I, I mean, current porn... It's it's not like seventies porn where there was a uh, where there was an industry and mm -hmm. there were auteurs, if you will. I mean, porn now. I'm not even sure what the industry is. Um, there, there's no kind of centralized industry for it anymore, and it's so uh, diffuse and so dispersed. It's become the marketplace of the individual. They can make specific stuff for the people that have either particular fetishes mm -hmm. or particular things that they like, and you can go directly to the person making it and just give them the money. There needs to be yeah. no middle person. And you know, so much of like porn 
snub or like exhibitionists and stuff mm. like that. I mean, the the only thing I can think of right now that everyone knows that's kind of like a, a traditional a thing are the porn parodies, mm-hmm. right? Um, which I don't, I haven't really watched much, much of that. Me neither. Uh, but those are the ones that at this point in time seems to be the slickest ones. Yeah, I saw the uh, Seinfeld porn parody. <laughs> Did you? Yes. That's the one that you went to? Yeah. A lot of fan service in there? You know, I mean, as far as they go, they did a pretty good job. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <sighs> it's superhero porn parody seem to be really big now as well. Yeah. Like, you know, this ain't Batman or whatever, triple X parody, which uh, takes the porn uh, angle on the horrifying, the killing joke for some oh, reason. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. I haven't seen them, but I've seen like them pop up on websites where people like to share photos and stuff like that. And it feels almost like a curiosity to go and check them out in the same way that like deep throat was a hit out of that curiosity factor but they seem to be making money for Mm. for the people who make them so so that's what it's all about at the end of the day (laughs) making money yeah uh angie continues have you seen any erica lust films no i don't know who that is yeah i don't know who that is either we'll have to check it out yeah i still haven't but from the previews they look beautifully shot the first porn i ever watched has a double feature of pulp friction and (laughs) one called dicks that was just a series of uh, sorted penises flashing across screen. That sounds like an art film if I ever heard wow. one. Pulp Friction was terrible, but there's something amusing about parody porn. Something to consider for a future episode. You know, I wouldn't be opposed to a Patreon episode on the topic. You could weigh in on Hamilton, the Hamilton porn parody. <laughs> Is it a musical, though? And finally, does Will or Justin have any interest in being involved with the production of porn? Mm, are you making an offer, Angie? But no. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I think that at this point in time, the stigma still exists of working in porn pornography and then going on to do other stuff even though a lot of people have successfully made that transition who can forget gregory dark who made some of the nastiest 90s porn films and he graduated to make the film see no evil with kane for for wwe pictures and he also directed a bunch of episodes of hbo's oz and he did a lot of music videos yeah exactly because he brought a kind of stylistic mtv style to his pornography that transitioned very well into those kind of movies i mean there's certainly stigma to i I don't think the porn industry is quite as associated with the film industry as it was Mm -hmm. in the 70s like you know there's that book the other hollywood Mm -hmm. i don't think people would think of the porn industry as on other Hollywood now. So like when you talk about somebody like Roberta Finley, she would say that they would make it with small crews over like five days or four days, which is ridiculous. But they would also have to shoot with film cameras which normal films would also uh, use. They would have to use lights and all the stuff. There was that crossover between both of them, and that doesn't exist anymore where you could just shoot it on your phone. But I think there's no denying that porn is more mainstream now than it's ever been. Yes. Because like, a website like Pornhub is one of the most visited websites on the internet. Yeah, there's not that... Well, I said there's a stigma between like crossing over in a way in the sense that someone would go like, oh, you work in pornography and you're also making real movies? But also, back in the 70s, a vast majority of people probably had never seen a pornographic film, whereas mm-hmm. now... Everybody's seen pornography. Yes. And that there's a level of, when you say about your love of 70s pornography, that's like a world that doesn't exist and will never exist mm-hmm. because it those circumstances will never re-arise again. And porn is more, like you said, mainstream than ever. Everybody does it. Not me. Except for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like how we both jumped over each other to say that. <laughs> and then she ends from the proud winner of your drawing contest last year, Angie. We should do that uh, yes. soon, that we do another contest. I don't know what it's going to be, so I'm not going to announce it now. You write us a Wikipedia page? <laughs> oh, yeah. The first person to write us a Wikipedia page gets to uh, pick a subject of an episode. Do we want to commit to that? Because somebody will do this. Yes, I know. I don't. I don't know if I want to commit to okay, that. Okay. What if? What if? If you if you create a Wikipedia page for us, we will shout you out on the podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and thank all the work that you've done for us. People might not do that <laughs> yeah. now, but they're like already all ready to go. And they go. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound like enough. But I think it's time. We're famous now. We've charted. <laughs> you know. I think we can. That's right. Because you sent me a link that we, we ha- finally cracked that hundred film related podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we're still there now. We're at the big time. So if you are a fan and you would go and do a Wikipedia page, you should also become a Patreon subscriber. For $5 a month, you get a new episode every week about a subject that's usually not even related to what we talked about on the regular one. This week, we did Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Because it was Groundhog Day. And we had to pick one. And I was like, oh, man, what is me and Will familiar with? And so uh, on uh, February 4th, very topical, we <laughs> yeah. recorded a Groundhog Day episode. Released probably on February 6th. 
6th or February 7th. Yeah. But we do talk about Bill Murray, his career, or feelings of it, and even get a little bit of a Harold Ramis discussion at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. So check it out. It's $5 a month. You get four episodes. And uh, just to let people know, there's going to be other bonuses coming up for Patreon subscribers. Right. So next week, we're going to be talking filmmaker Gordon Parks. Best known to casual observers as the director of Shaft. He also directed The Learning Tree, which is a was a big critical success at the time. Would go on to do Shaft's big score, Lead Belly, and is most famous for being a photographer. Mm-hmm. So that's our filmmaker for next week. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So probably the biggest piece of film news this week was the New York Times article featuring Uma Thurman's interview about her experiences on the set of Kill Bill Volume 2, specifically the dangerous stunt she was pressured to do that by Quentin Tarantino that led to permanent injuries for her. And uh, did you watch the video? I did watch the video. My God, it's like some real uh, Mondo Kane stuff, huh? Yeah, so Uma Thurman in this article that was published in the New York Times, she was asked at the time the Harvey Weinstein scandal was breaking if she had anything to comment, and she was like, yeah, I'll do it when I'm ready. And so this New York Times article details that Harvey Weinstein did all the toxic fucking shit that he did to everybody else, but most specifically, she uh, discusses the way that Quentin Tarantino kind of betrayed her trust with that Kill Bill 2 accident. For people that haven't seen it, it is a shot in Kill Bill 2 I'm sure it's in the movie, I don't Probably. recall, yeah. where she's driving the vintage uh, car down some really rough terrain. And um, in the article, she talks about how she felt uncomfortable driving the car because it was a stick shift that it didn't control too well, that she would have to be driving incredibly fast, mm-hmm. and that it could be anyone that could do that shot because mm. it was just the back of her head and the way her hair was flying. But Tarantino said, no, Uma, you have to do this. Mm. And so she did it. And the car kind of lost control and she slammed right into a tree. So obviously, you know, monstrous stuff. One of the things that this inspired me to think about a little bit was I think one of the structuring myths of cinema is the idea of the artist and his muse, Mm -hmm. you know, um, whether it's uh, Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich or Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina or Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. Many examples of this. And that's definitely how Kill Bill was marketed at the time. Like, it was definitely regarded as this brilliant director's uh, love letter to his favorite leading lady. And I guess this is, you know, this is one of those ideas that, you know, would have seemed really cool as recently as, I think, two years ago. Mm -hmm. But Um, the idea of a muse and the director also comes into the territory of, well, that director or auteur or whatever has to be in some ways controlling and abusing his muse to get what he wants out of her. Well, the construct is sexist. Yes. Because it's it's suggesting that, you know, he's the puppet master, he's the mastermind, and ultimately he's he knows how to present this woman mm-hmm. in the perfect light. Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of takes away or it minimizes the idea that it's a collaboration. Or that she know? has any agency. Yeah, like, yeah. And it also kind of, for that romantic idea to continue, you have to hand wave a lot of very, you know, problematic stuff that would come up with most of these directors that has been made publicly. Mm-hmm. Like, even someone like Jean-Luc Godard, all the time when it's Anna Karina's birthday or some film day, they always post photos of them together when it's been documented everywhere that Jean-Luc Godard was physically abusive towards her and incredibly emotionally abusive as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw a lot of people on my on my Twitter feed saying things like, oh, I can never watch a Tarantino movie again, which all just seems like grandstanding to me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think I think it's not so much throwing out Kill Bill is, is like you... It, you have to recontextualize yeah, it, what it, Kill Bill yeah, is. You have to re- yeah, you have to reconsider it. And, uh, you know, just reconsider what is the relationship between Tarantino and what is the creative relationship between them. And the way that Tarantino acted afterwards is even worse when she talks about that she wanted that footage to see it Mm -hmm. and, I don't know, take legal action if necessary, which would be completely within her rights. Mm -hmm. And Tarantino refused to give it to her. And I assume that's probably pressure from Harvey Weinstein saying, like, you can't give it, you can't give it. I think also probably him too, though. Because it's embarrassing on him. Yeah. But, you know, when Tarantino was doing it, I think Tarantino would be one of those guys who would buy into the myth of, oh, let's let's do whatever it takes to get the mm. that brilliant image on the screen. You know, all that matters is what's up there on screen and like we sacrifice for art and that sort of thing, which that whole attitude, I think, had a lot more currency 10 years ago. Pain is temporary. Film yeah. is forever. Which is why I think, you know, Werner Herzog should probably just keep his head low for the next year or two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Uh, oh yeah, has there been no um, memification of some Herzog comment where he says some awful thing? I'm, that... I'm just saying, if somebody watches Burden of Dreams in the next year or two, yeah. you know, like he should just like keep a low profile for a while. Well, I mean, <laughs> that brings an idea of how we're going to perceive the way that directors or even producers control their crew, right? Uh-huh. There's that idea of. Um, you know, they're the director. They can do whatever they want as long as they get a good end product. Mm-hmm. And this is very prevalent with women because they are at the beck and call of wherever the man is in control. And that's also a problem with everyone, whether it's cr- like lowly crew members or even cinematographers and stuff like that. You read something like Easy Rider to Raging Bulls, where when it came out, people were like, oh my God, isn't this crazy how they acted? Mm-hmm. You read that book now and people are going to go, holy shit, like, can I watch movies by these people? people anymore Mm -hmm. because of how they treated these people like William Friedkin was a monster when he shot the exorcist and especially sorcerer I guess I just found the article a little troubling because like you know let's face it we're guys who grew up in in Mm -hmm. the Tarantino era and I'm sure that myth of the artist and his muse must have had some appeal to us growing up I Mm -hmm. mean it probably did to me I I might not have said it that way but Mm -hmm. it's like it's a very sort of uh romantic notion and Mm. it's sort of it's you know if you're if you're a young boy who kind of idolizes these hyper macho filmmaker types it 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 plays into that image a little bit yeah and like even like the classic directors john ford Mm -hmm. uh alfred hitchcock did also have their muses that inspired them to create great art and Mm -hmm. that they then treated like garbage yeah and i think that what's going to happen is that especially with the way that cinema is changing as far as people are going to start talking about things in more of a collaborative sense because the muse and uh, the artist is not a collaboration there in the strictest sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel conflicted about this a little bit because I believe in the artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I believe there is, you know, there is such a thing as an artist, but but I mean, I also I also believe like in collaboration. Artist, so yeah. I don't, like, I, and, and I realize the artist can be a very toxic thing, especially when you're 2004 era Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you're, you're so convinced of your own brilliance. Well, I've uh, made two films and the first thing that you realize when you make a film is that you can treat your cast and crew in two ways you can either be the boss and they just do whatever you want Mm -hmm. or you can try to implement them in the process somehow and you know have them collaborate with you Mm -hmm. because what Truffaut said was the auteur theory and by definition like a film as being the work of one artist anyone who says that as a director is lying (laughs) but I mean like Let's face it, we are an auteurist podcast. Yes, here. we are. I mean, we, the, we believe in the auteur theory. We don't do. Think? I would like to think that I don't believe that this is all from one person, that there can be levels of collaboration as you go along. I guess I think that's one of the most interesting things about film. I mean, it is it is a collaborative medium in mm. which most of the most interesting things are ultimately um, attributable to, to a single person's mm-hmm. vision. It's just so it's a it's a paradox, and there's that tension in cinema that makes it interesting. Yeah, because cinema is just so complex because there are so many mm-hmm. people working on it that it's difficult to like. Well, how do I consider this person as well in this? But like, but, but yeah. I, and, you know, what's interesting about a movie like Citizen Kane, for yeah. instance, is that it is an Orson Welles movie, and yet it is also, you can also determine uh, Greg Tolan's cinematography mm-hmm. or Robert Wise's editing or yeah. all these other things. Yeah, like, we're not going to solve it because it is something that's so complex, mm-hmm. but I think that as long as we start talking about more collaborations with the productions that they're on, that that's going to shift the narrative and make things change the way that they have to do.